Welcome to episode 108 of Red Board Rewind. My name is Spencer Luganbuehl, and today my special guest is none other than In The Money's very own Nick Tamro. Me and Nick go over four races from this past Saturday at Saratoga Racecourse. Those races being 7, 8, 9, and 10. Pretty much an all-stakes pick four lineup for you guys today. And some angles we talk about are Nick's time being a public handicapper and certain wagering strategies. We also talk some jockey props and the key race angle. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest for this week's Redboard Rewind. He's been on many times before. It is In The Money's very own Nick Tamaro. Nick, how are you today? I'm doing great, Spencer. It feels like it should be Kentucky Derby week, right? That's my uh, that's my official, unofficial spot on your show? Th- that's that's the slot we have you in for. And we had you in, I think, for Florida Derby one year as well. So, right. no, always glad to talk Derby with you as well. We, we, got, we got a Derby today, just not the Derby. Uh, we're going to talk some races from Saratoga this past Saturday. How, uh, how was your weekend overall there at the spa? wasn't bad. I, I had probably the best weekend I've had at the meet. Um, I was looking going into last week to see where I was plus or minus and, and wasn't particularly thrilled. I've told myself I'm going to gonna be as, as prudent and careful as possible betting Saratoga this year because it can be a real grind and it can get very ugly from a wagering perspective if things aren't going right. So uh, no, I had a good week. I had to pick five on uh, Wednesday, the early one, uh, quite a few times. And so that, that helped a good bit. And I think I picked three of the winners in the sequence in that and hit it Friday late and uh, Saturday, the stakes one. So yeah, it was good. It was not, I didn't really have any big intra race success, although the national, the hall of fame was, uh, was a race I hit pretty well and I thought I was going to get DQ'd. So all in all, I'll take it, you know, it had been pretty ugly the first three weeks or so. And so now I'm back at least in the uh, fighting range. It's always good. Obviously we're at the midweek point to go back and check your stats. And I think the way you said that you had three winners in the sequence, mostly as A's. I feel like when you start hitting pick fives, pick fours, et cetera, with like your B backups, it's like you're almost getting lucky at that point. Cause you're, you're having horses hit that you're about to throw out and decide to keep in. So when you can hit over half the sequence with your A horses, I mean, I think you're really starting to see the ball that much better. And you can kind of get that confidence boost for sure. No question about it. Yeah. And then, I mean, if you're, if you're handicapping and you're betting the right way, your A's should offer a mixture of, of odds and they shouldn't just necessarily be low priced horses, but you should be opening yourself up to the possibility that you could see, you know, a bit of a price Friday sequence, the late one, I had a 40 under in the first leg at eight to one as an A. And so that was obviously that enabled me to hit it with fast boat, winning the fourth leg as a backup, um, which I had Caratari as a backup too. So I wouldn't have minded if Fastbo didn't run him down, <laughs> but it, it at least set me up to get alive to the horses I liked in the last. And, and yes, I had uh, digital software and bailout both, but bailouts 24th consecutive defeat certainly came uh, <laughs> with me smarting a little bit afterwards. I, I think though, too, just what you say, how adding value with your A's, I think everyone's just like, okay, Nick's goes my loan a, and we're going to go from there. And I think like, even for my sequence there, I, I didn't play pick four, pick five, but I used Nick's going. I also used Silver State in the double, both as quote-unquote A horses. I think you do need to add that value because if all you're doing is hitting backups with, you know, your eight to 15 to one shots, you're only going to hit the one ticket. You need to have those A's so you can hit one, two, maybe even three times. And that's those are the tickets when you hit two or three times that just make your your meat in general. I mean, you listen to – you read all these old school books and people say, oh, the, the thing that turned my meat around was the, you know, the pick three I hit seven times for 231 when they really hit it for like a thousand that's what really turns the meat around not the fact they hit the three backup pick three for 121 that's just like a breaking even day or almost you know maybe a little bit in the positive yeah no question about it i mean when you when you can maximize your good opinions and take advantage of what uh what happened that you could foresee you know that's where you can really make money and that's going to separate having a a good a great day from having a good day is that you just have to maximize those as much as possible and you know, make them pay when you're right. Jonathan Kinchin's always said it. He's right about that. 
I can't agree more with JK's sentiment there. Let's switch gears a little bit. We talk about making goals for your, your handicapping and your just overall gambling. When you were a public handicapper, do you ever have any like set goals? Like obviously I, I the best illustration I have would be, you know, Dave Litfin was always that 30 plus percent. He would have a lot more chalk quote unquote and have more winners. Whereas Mike Beer seems to be the guy who is maybe 20%, but he's having those, you know, nine, 10, eight to one shots that he can put on top and have score. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, the public wants both. The public wants to be given winners, and the public handicapper's job is to pick winners. But um, I, I, I like Mike's philosophy of picking interesting horses, picking prices when he can, putting longer prices in the mix when he can. I mean, you're you're offering up three picks, four picks sometimes, and you're just trying to give guidelines. It's a, it's a suggested play rather than, Hey, I think you should bet $2 to win on all of my winners, you know, on all of my top picks rather. I mean, you might end up making money some days you are going to have a hard time making money long-term. So I think it's just a mixture of, of both. Um, We all like picking winners, obviously, but public handicappers that are just simply, you know, choking on chalk left and right, they're not doing anybody a service. You know, no, no one needs a, a quasi professional to tell them uh, about all the virtues of a six to five shot. And, you know, you, you, none of us really would have, we shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back if we liked a horse like Nick's go right. Or, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, but if you liked a horse like Bella Sophia, you know, that's good. That's, that's a, that's a good, good selection. So I think ideally what you're looking for is a little bit of both. You want to give out interesting ideas. You want to give people, if you're doing a written analysis, you want to say things that might be a little bit provocative um, and give people some ideas on what you're thinking of doing in terms of betting. Cause ultimately that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to take your pick and, and, and formulate it in some type of wagering scenario that will help them make money. And uh, the better you can, more you can do that, the better. There's a lot of philosophy. There's a lot of strategy in it. You know, I've spent a lot of time talking to Andy Serling about this and other people that, that do any kind of public handicapping. And, you know, Andy won't pick a big price horse second. He'll generally only, if he's going to pick a price horse first or second, he's going to pick them first. And he said, there's just no, you know, there's no reason to say, oh, well, I picked that 22 to one shot second. You know, unless it's a situation where you're picking a horse that you know is clearly second best behind a very, very short price. And I think that's a good rule of thumb. Um, but you should, and without being overly tangential with this, what a public handicapper should be doing is what any, in my opinion, what any good handicapper should be doing is identifying the favorite when they first start looking and whether you like them. Yeah. And if you don't like them, then that's where your handicapping process starts. And it's one thing to be overly critical of the favorite and simply never like them, as opposed to really taking a learned, realistic viewpoint where you're you're trying to give it a you know a good objective approach and uh, and really decipher whether you like that horse. Because I mean, all of us could say, yeah, well, I'm picking against the favorite because he's the favorite. Well, I mean, does he or she really have credentials to win, and et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a great point with Andy too. I think Andy got into not a spat, but just, I think somebody like really hated on one of his picks last week and it was a big bomb and the horse ended up running third at 26 to one. And they were like, see, nice pick on top still, still lost. And it's like, how many 26 to one shots do you think are hitting the board every day? Like, I mean, that that's solid enough when you can split the field with a horse like that and just know that, you know, I'm sure Andy made the note next time out. He's looking for certain stuff that'll improve that horse the second or even first. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, if you want to start making fun of a public handicapper's picks, they're going to give you a lot of material, right? They're going to give you a lot of opportunity to do it. And uh, that's one where I would never, ever mock somebody's 20 plus to one shot that they've picked because uh, there's just no glory in doing so. Right. I mean, there's no benefit in, in saying, Oh yeah, so-and-so, you know, that was a bad pick because the horse didn't win right. Or something like that. That's just very, very silly to me. And, you know, one thing, you know, about Andy, love him or hate him is that if he likes a horse, regardless of the price, he's going to give you reason why, and it's going to be well thought out. It's going to be researched and it's going to be, in his opinion, it's going to be factual. I think if I remember from me back with my Shapper Capper and anonymous racing days, I think the two best days I ever had were both at Santa Anita. I went six for eight with top picks and the other two races, my second choice one. Have you ever like right. ha- had a perfect card or anything like that where you're just like, Holy crap! I hit absolutely every top pick winner. No, um, no, actually, I admire Bob Ike who uh, who posted picks in uh, I think the L.A. Times for mm-hmm. years. Some of the publications in Southern California, very good handicapper, nice guy, and he went eight for eight at Del Mar once, and um, and I think there were a couple of prices in there, a couple couple of double digit prices. But no, I had days at Aqueduct over the years where I had six. Mm-hmm. I may have had a day at Saratoga where I had seven. 
um, you know, and a lot of times that's going to be, those are going to be horses that are fed. Yeah. You know, there, there's going to be a lot of horses in there that are, that are pretty heavily backed. It's going to be hard to, if you're picking horses that are interesting prices, you know, you're going to have a lot more two or three win days, but you might have two or three win days where you're, you got a 350 ROI. So, and then it's a real opportunity. (laughs) Yeah. Real opportunity to make money. You know, I mean, the, the sequence that I remember most fondly in late September, early September of, uh, of 2016, late in the meet was I picked silver ride. I want to say second or third in the first leg of the pick five on Woodward day. Mm-hmm. And uh, he won at 36 to one and ended up hitting the pick five. And uh, that was a sequence where I, I believe I had three winners in the sequence and one of them, none of them were silver ride. So, you yeah. know, it was one where if you just like to ride horses and, and strung them together, put them together on the right ticket, then you really had a chance to make money. Before we get into the race for the day, just something just overall handicapping esque. I, I, I've really been trying to, analyze down and really get my process down. And I think so much with handicapping as it comes to betting, the goal in the handicapping process isn't to find the winner more or less it's to find the losers and then to find contenders. And I think that what a lot of people do is they find a race where there's four or five horses that, that they think can win the race. One of them goes off at six to five. a la, what was it? Shaker town on Sunday in the opener. And they, they bet the horse and sometimes they're lucky and it wins like it did that day. Or you're like me. And I, I play out, two horse wind Dutch with the two horses that run second and third behind. And I, I think that's a big key thing for people who aren't winning at the game right now. The object for you is not to just bet your top pick, no matter what, if your top pick is over bet, you need to learn to bet that second and third place horse you like, because obviously you're getting, you know, five, six, seven to one of those types of horses. Yes. No question about it. Um, it that's exactly. Yeah. You, you, You've identified, you know, the biggest issue, of course, which is transferring your handicapping to your betting. Mm-hmm. And are you betting the right way? Are you doing it in an optimal way? Are you giving yourself enough of an opportunity to win? Are you in the right pools? Are you playing those the right way? You know, I know there's been a lot of conversation for the last few months about people giving out tickets. And um, and there's the police that, that, that are all over <laughs> Twitter that want to find the worst ticket structures. And, you know, don't get me wrong, there are people that put out tickets on a regular basis that are not well thought out. I mean, they're not. It's also a very tough thing to do. It's very tough in in a lot of cases, days in advance for you to put a ticket together, depending on the setting. You know, you don't know what what necessarily is going on. Obviously, you want to do ideally you'd want to do that as late as possible. But you do also want to be very careful about your ticket structure and you want to make sure that you're not, you know, giving out a ticket where you have a single that's going to be a short price. You also have multiple legs where, you know, you're two or three deep and you're using all the favorites because you're just not really giving anybody an opportunity to make money. The problem is that you're judged by how frequently those tickets hit, right? Not if you hit one of them out of the entire meet and it pays 10 grand. So that's the thing that did you, and that's a different topic really from what you're referring to, but you know, what you want to do is you want to take your opinion and you want to bet it well, obviously that goes without saying, but you know, you take a race, like one of the only races I've bet well on an intra race basis at Saratoga was the hall of fame because I thought public sector couldn't lose. Mm-hmm. And I thought the interesting horses for second were annex and, uh, Oh hell, I can't remember the other horse's name. Oh, the Cassie horse from Canada. Because they yes. weren't the second choice. They weren't the mm-hmm. second or third choice. And and so I played two exactas and then I played trifectas overall. Um, it was like two over one, four overall, and two overall over one, four for a little bit. And so the five ran third at 30 to one and, you know, ended up with quite a few dollars on the trifecta and a nice mm-hmm. exacta. So that was one where my I bet my opinion, well, I didn't spend a dollar putting public sector in second. Would I have felt like an idiot if Annex beat him? You know, perhaps, but that wasn't my opinion. My opinion was the public sector was going to win and I was going to try and make money with him winning and, and something else happening. Like I said to you afterwards, and we'll get into it when we start talking about the races, but you know, I wanted to, I played the Whitney contest over the weekend, didn't do any good. And part of it was that I bet two races heavily and I played my opinions and they didn't pan out. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'll take that it, rather than having, you know, there have been plenty of contests where I've kind of putzed around and ended up making much too large a wager on a race where I didn't have a great opinion and it didn't work out. So it's uh, that, that's, that's, sort of what we're on an endless quest for, right? Is, is taking our, our good handicapping days and translating them into good betting days. And I, I love the fact that you brought up the, you know, quote unquote, the police with the, with the bad ticket structure. I think uh, Carrie Fodius had a famous quote in Pete and Frank Scatoni's book where he goes, if you're not winning in the wind pool, why the heck are you in the inter-racer, you know, horizontal yeah. wagers? And, and, and I feel that on such a strong level because it is. I mean, if you're hitting 
one winner in 10 races and you're trying to hit five in a row. And I get it. You can use other horses than just one horse. I mean, talk about shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. You're going to get very, very sloppy. Exactly. It's going to be really, really hard because you're taking something you're, you're basically admitting you're not good at something and you're now trying to, to do it on a really large scale, which is very, very difficult. Let's go ahead and move into the first of our four races. We're going to kind of do the quote unquote. It's a, it's a pick four sequence of all graded stakes, three grade ones, one grade two. First race from Saturday, race number seven, the grade two Glens falls a mile and a half on the inner turf course. What did you like in here, Nick? You know, this was, uh, I thought it was an interesting race because you were dealing with warlike goddess coming in off the layoff and I, I ended up in the in the uh, pick five. I used two A's. I used Warlike Goddess and Delica. I, I was a little. I was somewhat seduced by Delica's good effort in the uh, in, in the Robert G. Dick down at at Delaware. I should probably be careful using my words, but um, mm-hmm. she ran very very well that day, setting a hot pace and going on with it. And so I thought eh, maybe there's an opportunity for that to happen again. But it did look like based on on the last couple of races that Warlike Goddess had run that she was probably just going to be a little bit too good for these. I didn't get involved in any of the uh, of the vertical pools, but um, uh, that was that was kind of my take. I really didn't think that anybody else in there was going to be much of a factor. I suppose there could have been a little support from my sister, Nat. I just didn't think she was good enough to compete with these. I think so, too. And this is just something for for the basic handicapper. When you look at a horse like my sister, Nat, and you look at just a lifetime, three wins and 17 tries, 10 underneath finishes. These are the type of horses that just are better served as just keying and exactas, keying and trifectas. You know, right. everyone's trying to, you know, figure out a way to get, you know, sneaky here. And, you know, Delica winning... That race down at Delaware, I, I thought the soft ground kind of helped as well. And I just thought the slow improvement, 90, 91, 92, I didn't, I think she needed to improve. And just looking overall, I just thought Warlike Goddess, uh, Julian obviously comes in and he's going to have the best winning percentage he's, he's had at a meet in a long time. Uh, people, you know, he's one of my favorite jockeys. They shit on him all the time for how bad he, he has not been good at Saratoga. But on the turf, if you looked at just his turf stats, I think his ROI has got to be positive. I mean, he's just... On the turf for me, one of the guys like Jose Lezcano, who I just look to lean on when they come in for rides like this. I thought the Chad Brown horse, Orlandas, just coming out of the red carpet. I feel like we always see this. The East horses ship west. They win. They come back. And then you literally see where they fall in the pecking order. And when this one didn't even hit the board in the, in the sheep shed, I just said, okay, I'm going to toss this horse, even though it's getting IRAD off the layoff. I just think that West Coast form, even when they win and come back, it's just kind of like fake form in a way. And these horses just don't really perform as well coming back to the East Coast. Yeah, I agree with that. I think a horse is getting sent to Del Mar, you know, other than maybe the Phillies for the matriarch. But mm-hmm. if you're getting sent to Del Mar by Chad in late November, then, you know, I don't think you're very high on the pecking order, so to speak. That means you probably weren't in the Breeders' Cup and uh, you're, you're likely just getting a start before you get freshened because his barn usually resets itself between December and, and April. It's somewhat of a consensus pick here with the number three warlike goddess for me and Nick. He also liked the number six Delica. Let's see who gets it done in the Glens Falls right now. And they're off in the 12 furlong Glens Falls stakes. And it is Delica who goes out for the early lead. Call Me Love is down at the rail. And right alongside is Luck Money. Uh, then it's a little more than a length to Orgland, who is running in fourth. My sister Nat is alongside and in fifth. And then it is Warlike Goddess and Temple City Terror as they race around the far turn for the first time. And Delica has stepped away here to lead by five lengths. Call Me Love at the rail. And alongside is Luck Money. They are right together second and third in the opening quarter mile in 24 and four-fifth seconds. So it is Delica, the leader here. Call Me Love, Luck Money. They remain heads apart, second and third. It's another three lengths back to Orgland, who's running in fourth. Alongside is my sister, Nat. Then comes Temple City Terra and the favorite warlike goddess. One lap remaining with Dalika showing the way here by a half dozen lengths. Ran the opening half mile in 49 seconds, and now they're going into the clubhouse turn. It is Dalika, the leader. Luck Money on the outside, down at the rail. It's Call Me Love. Then a break of another four and a half lengths back to Orgland, who's in fourth. On the outside, my sister Nat. Then Temple City Terror and Warlike Goddess is still the trailer in seventh. So positions unchanged after three quarters in one thirteen and four. Delica leads here by seven lengths. Call Me Love is second by a head. Luck Money on the outside is in third. And then it's a break of three to Orgland. Two more to my sister Nat. 
followed by Temple City Terror and Warlike Goddess. The field is approaching the far turn. And now they're getting closer to Dalika. Dalika's still in front. The lead's two and a half lengths. Call Me Love and Luck Money. Right together, second and third. And then it's Orgland in fourth. Temple City Terror down at the rail. Alongside is my sister Nat, who begins to pick it up. And the trailer is Warlike Goddess, who now starts to move on the extreme outside. Now they have caught and they have passed Dalika. Down at the rail, it is Call Me Love. On the outside, it is Luck Money, along with my sister Nat. And here is Warlike Goddess. Warlike Goddess now storms to the front. Warlike Goddess with a last-to-first move, and she's on her way to victory in this Glens Fall Stakes. And the number three, Warlike Goddess, gets it done. $3.70 is the winning mutual 99 buyer little small uptick. This horse just looked really nice. And I mean, by, by about the eighth pole, this race was over. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it depends on, uh, I was actually watching this race with my dad and they were halfway down the backstretch and he's like, where's the favorite? I said, she's last. And he goes, Oh gosh. I said, no, she's going to win. And you knew they were going pretty quick. And, and, and Leperu had a, just a fistful of horse and, you know, it was good. What you said before is, is true. I mean, he's taken a lot of heat over the years and, and uh, some of it deservedly so, but he's definitely riding with a lot more confidence than he has in quite some time. And that could have to do with having changed agents. But um, this was kind of a vintage Julian Leperu ride, uh, uh, you know, a sit and wait and wait and wait and wait and then explode. And when she angled out on the turn, I think you knew she was uh, she, she was she was playing a different game than, than her rivals. Um, so it was a very impressive effort. I mean, I don't know. I guess the interesting thing about this filly is that this year's Breeders' Cup filly and mirror turf will be at a mile and three eighths mm-hmm. around three turns. And that might be her game. You know, that might be I don't know if she's going to be capable of, of expanding that to the to the grade one level. But I mean, I would imagine Bill Mott's going to look at the Flower Bowl and see if she stacks up with the. Uh, or the Flower Bowl is, is at Saratoga now. Is, I don't know. They changed the schedule around. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so bad. Yeah, I don't know where the race is. But, yeah, uh, but, you know, either way, he's going to look for a prep and uh, going to look for an opportunity to, to, to get her one more probably before the, uh, the Breeders' Cup and see where she stands. Because, you know, I mean, if you're talking about, like, Mean Mary and, and uh, the I guess, the Joey O'Brien horse that ran second to her in the New York, you know, or, like, it just looks like she's probably – she can probably be competitive with them. I think so, too. Just overall looking at the field in general, when we talk about grade twos, this is not the strongest grade two. And something that I believe James Quinn said over the years is, you know, you want to see horses that have at least two wins at a certain class level to prove, you know, in the grade stake level that they are that true kind of graded stake type. Or like guys had a couple grade threes, now jumped up and won a grade two. And when you have a horse like my sister Nat runs second, who is the proverbial second choice horse that always runs second. I don't know how strong this race is, and I kind of wonder – Going forward, like when we see Mean Mary and those types, if this one may get a little bit over bet and maybe even like at three or four to one is a little bit over bet and Mean Mary or a horse like that can go off at seven to five and you can kind of get some extra value on a favorite in that way. I, I was hoping to get a world like guys. My sister and I exacta it paid seven sixty for a dollar. I usually try and ch- uh, when I go chalk chalk, make at least a ten dollar exacta to try and get some value. So that was a, a, a near miss for me just uh, on the board in general. I think the thing that you want to take away from this race from a, a pace and race dynamic standpoint is this was a very, very strong early pace. Yes. This was a, you know, for all of the, of, of the, the consternation about jockeys being passive and <laughs> which is true. Um, this was a very, very strong pace for your time from us user. I mean, it was red, 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 the first, uh, three segments and it played out like that. I mean, if you look, it was a completely upside down race. The one, two, three finishers were last next to last and third to last at the pace call. So um, maybe in terms of how you can use it going forward, I'll be interested to see if we can find luck money at a big price next time, maybe in a, Mm -hmm. you know, in a lesser mile and a half mile and three eighths type race somewhere in the mid Atlantic. I'd keep an eye on her uh, for Arno Delacour. There's all, there's a race generally at Belmont in the fall towards the end of the meet actually that she won last year that he might, you know, want to be looking at it's not a graded race or anything like that, but she actually did a sneaky amount of running in there being somewhat in range of, of the pace. And I mean, if you look at the horses that were close early to and call me love, just were absolutely buried. Yeah. So luck money might be one that you want to take out of there for a, uh, you know, bit of big price, hopefully at a good enough price in a, in a reasonable race. Let's move on to race number eight from Saratoga is the long jeans test. It is a grade one, seven furlongs on the dirt. We see the second place horse to uh, Malathat come back. That being search results, what would we like in here, Nick? 
You know, I liked obligatory and, and I thought obligatory ran a very good race in the acorn. I thought there was not a heck of a lot of pace in front of her and she really finished nicely. Felt like seven furlongs was really her game. And, you know, clearly the error of my ways, which I commit much too frequently uh, betting in New York racing is that I thought there'd be a pace in here. I, I thought that, <laughs> that it was just a foregone conclusion that illumination would go and, and Bella Sophia would be very aggressively ridden. And, um, you know, I guess I was bamboozled by the, the two wins that always Karina had to begin her career where she went to the lead and uh, there was really little to no effort made to get her to the lead. So I, I shouldn't talk too much about the race in a post-race fashion, but I thought there'd be a big pace. I thought it would set up obligatory. I thought make mischief was an interesting horse at a price. She seems to fire every time. And I felt like she'd be able to sit back and make one run. So that was generally my approach. As far as the multi-race bets go, um, I used obligatory search results and, uh, Bella Sophia equally. And I talked to Steve Bick at length on Friday morning about Bella Sophia and, and how she looked interesting and, and looked like a horse. She was coming out of a one other than, and granted, you know, it's a big jump to go from a one other than to a, to a grade one stake race, obviously, but she beat older horses in that one other than, and, and the pace had been fast and they hit the eighth pole and she just exploded. And it looked like an impressive effort. I know it came back a little quickly, her coming back at, at least to face this kind of competition, but it certainly did give you got the impression from it that Bella Sophia might be something really good I think for me the, the key in this is also just looking if you have formula you get the time form the blues and the reds and a lot of horses were coming off wins with blue fractions and this one had also you know has a has a blue fraction from the Jersey girl but when you can have red fractions jumping up in class and an allowance race off that off a maiden win obviously it was dropping off the listed state quote-unquote but just like you had said the way that she had exploded I just thought that this was a super salty field. I also used obligatory and search results. So Bella Sophia was my third choice and based off of my odds line, I actually couldn't bet anybody in this race. Search results need to be three to one obligatory need to be nine to two. And uh, I needed Bella Sophia at six to one. So sometimes that's the way the cookie crumbles and like you just have to pass a race and it's you almost you have to give yourself a pat on the back. It's like it's a courageous pass. You don't want to play anybody at too short a price. I just didn't want to leave search results off. I thought the last race was fine. Obviously, just losing to Mal at that, who everyone thinks is going to be the goods going on and going forward, even with that uh, last time loss. Uh, obligatory to me was just the one as well at 4-1 to one on the morning line, Jose Ortiz. I feel like just when you look at it, it's the top three riders for the meet so far. And, you know, I, I think it was interesting, Saez getting back on and Jose having to go another route of ground in this one. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it all, all sort of makes sense. And, you know, the concern, of course, was... Uh whether obligatory would be as effective as she was in a race like the eight bells and uh, would she get the pace to run out late? And, you know, the interesting thing from a wagering standpoint is that we were all sort of done a favor by illumination, taking as much money as she did. Yeah. I think there probably were a number of people that were dying to tell everyone that they bet on a Bob Baffert horse that won a race called the test, but um, <laughs> she had absolutely no chance on paper. She was yeah. the, she was basically the eighth best horse on paper. And I want to say she went off the fourth or fourth choice, fifth choice, something like that. I mean, yeah. super sensational was like a wild overlay and, um, and it actually was, it was a horse that had win credentials, but yeah, there were, there were three horses bet more than uh, illumination. That's when, just total when, insanity. When you have always Karina, who was literally exactly where illumination was, who had just come off a second of the mother goose. And this one's coming off a maiden win. That's all you need to know about this Same. race. It's pretty much yeah. a consensus idea of obligatory search results and Bella Sophia for me and Nick. What's you can get done here in the test right now. Bella Sophia breaks well from the extreme outside and is out for the lead, quickly joined from the rail by Illumination. So it is Illumination and Bella Sophia. They are 1-2. And then it is always Karina who is racing in third. Down on the Inside is super sensational, followed on the outside by search results in fifth. Zygiel is next in sixth. Make Mischief is in seventh. And the early trailer is obligatory in eighth as the three-year-old Phillies move up the Saratoga backstretch after a quarter in 22 and four-fifth seconds. Elimination is the leader. Super Sensational running in second. Bella Sophia now ranging up on the outside. Regain second. Super Sensational is next and third. Search results. And always Karina right together fourth and fifth. Then it is Zajil and a break of two lengths to the two trailers. Make mischief and obligatory. 
It is Illumination and Bella Sophia through a half and 45 and three-fifth seconds. And now they're in the stretch. Illumination closest to the rail with the lead. Bella Sophia is all out on the outside in second. And then Super Sensational and search results. And there's the move by Bella Sophia to take over the lead in deep stretch. A 16th to the finish. It is Bella Sophia with Super Sensational giving chase in second. Bella Sophia with a top-notch effort to win the grade one long Jeans test. And the number eight, Bella Sophia wins, paying 10, 40, 101 buyer. Really nice, improving effort. And this one, too, I feel like just middle of the stretch, it's exploded just like that allowance win. And we might have someone special here. Yeah, I'll tell you what, this is the best uh, progeny of Awesome Patriot. That's yes. for sure. $20,000 at the OBS open sale back in 2020. Um, this is a really nice horse. She's, she's very, very good. I believe this is the first grade one for Rudy Rodriguez since dad's caps. No, or maybe lady Ivanka, but he's got, yeah. uh, I think he's got like four or five grade ones in his career. They're all sprinting too. Um, Bella Sophia is a really, really nice horse. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what he does with her moving forward. Um, you know, I think the, I, I think looking at it from a post-race perspective, you probably thought coming out of it immediately that she ran better than she did because of the way illumination folded. Mm -hmm. But the more you watch the replay and you look at the race, you realize this was a very slow pace. Yeah. And, and she was, she was greatly aided by sitting on top of a slow pace. And um, I mean, I'll be honest, if, if they're ambitious enough and I don't think they will, I don't think they'll come back in three weeks again, but if there's any chance that they entertain the thought of going in a race like the ballerina, um, she has no chance whatsoever against Bells the one and Gamine and horses like yeah. that. I imagine they'll go more of a path of least resistance and look at like the Prioress or the gallant blue, maybe to ultimately get to the breeders cup, but you know, no question about it. She's a talented horse. She's a good horse. And, uh, and she proved it quite clearly, you know, the, the, who was the, the, second best performer in the race, super sensational. Um, Ricardo Santana really gets a lot of credit there, aggressive ride. And, you know, one of the things that I enjoy about Santana is that there, and, and a lot of us that sort of clamor for jockeys to be more aggressive, people think you want every, you want them to put everything on the lead. It's like, no, I don't want them to put everything on the lead. I want them to put their horses in the race. <laughs> and one of the things you will see Santana do is they'll get out of the gate and he'll ride them a little bit. It's not necessarily to get to the lead, but it might be to put some heat on whoever gets to the lead, or it might be just to make sure his horse ends up in a good position and his good aggressive ride on super sensational is exactly what led to her getting second in here um the winner obviously was a little bit too good on the day with the way the race unfolded but she picked up a grade one placing because her her jockey gave her a very very heady ride i think i was more disappointed with search results performance after watching the race the first time and i'm actually not looking back on it i think the, the good thing about this is that it may have made it clear to trainer chad brown that he needs to try her long again she mm -hmm. just she doesn't need to be pigeonholed as a, a seven to eight furlong horse, because if you watch the way she finished the gazelle over a horse like Maracuja and uh, and the Kentucky Oaks, for that matter, and then look at this, she looks like a filly who needs to go to the cotillion and try and get a get a grade one around two turns and and do something like that, because uh, I think she's a little bit better. She might even be a little bit better than he's giving her credit for. Obligatory didn't run well, didn't get much pace to run at. I'd be willing to give her another shot at seven eights. She might just be a grade two or grade three type, um, but I'd, I'd be willing to give her one more try. It's always hard with these lightly raced three-year-olds when you try to say, oh, I maybe, you know, the back-to-back -back 95s for search results made a bounce happen, but there was a layoff in the same when you look at obligatory, you know, 93, 94, and now we get a small bounce in, into the mid-80s. I feel that with these types, I think search results, I think that maybe the reason they're going short is because they just don't want to face mouth that again, maybe, and they're just, like, trying to, you know, put the round circle into the square hole and just hope that they didn't have to try and go long again. I think the horse is fine long. I mean, what's wrong with a 92 and 95? And, I mean, you know, he lost the horse by a neck, so what are you really afraid of at this point? Yeah, I agree. I would send her long and try and, and – you know, find the backdoor route to the distaff. Obviously, the distaff is going to be a very tough race because of the older fillies, but you never know. It's only August. A lot can happen in three months. And yeah, I think this race made it clear that the other thing is that, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to seem too dismissive of search results, maybe ultimately being better at or around a mile because I read thought like we did, like I did, that there was going to be some pace here. And I think he probably realized somewhere around the turn, it just didn't materialize. You know, the, the, when John Velasquez put illumination on the lead and, and slowed things down, uh, it took a lot of horses out of the race and they had given up too much ground early, you know, search results for that matter was about uh, two and a half, three lengths off the lead, which is a little bit too far back for the way that race unfolded. So I don't know, 
you know, I, I'm very intrigued to see where Bella Sophia shows up again, as well as search results. And uh, I, I know what I'd like to do wagering wise with each of them. Let's move on to race number nine. It is the Saratoga Derby Invitational one three sixteen miles on the melon. I had kind of a cop out in this race just from looking over the race real quick. I said, if you're going to play this race horizontally, I said, use all the Europeans because we've seen too many Europeans somehow win this year. And I said, throw out all the Americans or use all the Americans throughout all the Europeans. I just didn't. It's so hard to mix and match for me in this type of race. And some of my friends did mix and match. And I just feel like when you do that, you kind of leave off the one or two Europeans that can all of a sudden just upset a field. And uh, that was the way I looked at the race. I just, uh, I ended up, I was going to play a two-horse wind Dutch on State of Rest and Soldier Rising, and a customer target interrupted me mid-wager, and I got shut out. <laughs> Good thing. Did you thank him afterwards? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish I had gotten shut out, but uh, yeah, I, I did the I did the classic sort of dumb American horse player thing and just bought into the oh Cadillac's the right Euro, <laughs> and, and and my you know my issue was that I probably paid too much attention to the distances that the eventual winner had been running and the fact that he was a star spangled banner. And I thought, ah, there's mile three sixteen is going to be way too much for this horse. I don't think he can get there. I'll tell you what, Joey O'Brien knows which horses to send to America. It's now pretty clear. Yes. And his father may be one for his last, whatever over here, but uh, well now two for with the, the two wins on, on stars and stripes, but Joey O'Brien knows which horses to send over when you consider the uh, Iridessa and thundering Knights' narrow miss in the New York. And now this, big performance it's uh it's yeah he's he knows which ones to ship and and that you know is is, a, is an admirable uh ability so i didn't care much for the american contingent i, I thought that uh i kind of had a negative opinion on the belmont derby in general and i was unsure of exactly how to handle it i didn't love the the way it unfolded and um and bolshoi ballet was under a ride for like nine of the 10 furlongs <laughs> yeah. and you know, he just didn't look like a Euro horse at all. You can sit on and sit on and sit on and then squeeze and they just explode. So, you know, Aiden O'Brien might know that he's more of a grinding type. That's going to be a little more suited to American turf racing than, than European turf racing because he can't quicken. So I was concerned about that and secret protector would be the Char Charlie Appleby horse looked interesting. I think we're going to deal with Charlie Appleby horses being over bet now because of the Diana and the just a game. Mm -hmm. And I think this is an example of that. So everybody's like, oh, God, I, I missed on those horses twice. So now I got to make up for it and, and overbet every Charlie Appleby horse. So, yeah, I, you know, as you can tell, as I just stammer on and on, I didn't really have a great opinion other than that. I felt like Cadillac looked like the right horse in the right place. And uh, as we're going to see now in the replay, I knew pretty early on what was going to happen with my pick. Real quick, just to, with Bolshoe Ballet and it like you not have you have a negative cantation to a race so let's say it's a, the, the negative key race where it's you know horses five horses have ran back they're 0 for 5 even to hit the exact and nobody's won do you tend to just like kind of stuff those horses and just be like okay i'm not playing anyone of the belmont derby if four horse four other horses show up i'll just use those four and move on in a way obviously you have to go through and handicap but i feel like once you don't like a certain race and six are coming out of that race it's you just kind of have to find the the odds and ends in the race in the other races that are coming into the race if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, I mean, I think if I think if you're if you're somebody who's going to buy into the key race philosophy, you need to apply it evenly, and and you need to apply it when it's negative, when it's positive, and you know everywhere in between. So yeah, I think I think that's the right sentiment all in all, and uh, you know I, I think the one of the greatest negative key races you're ever going to find was this year's Arkansas Derby. It's been yes. the most unproductive Grade One race you possibly might find all year. And it became kind of the expected thing over and over that you were going to bet against those horses. So I remember there was a, a race, a, a bad maiden claiming race early in the Belmont meet last year during the pandemic. And I remember making my notes afterwards and was like, this is a horrible race. And I kid you not, there were five run back winners. And it just, by the time the <laughs> yeah. third one happened, I'm like, okay, I'm going to bet everybody from that race. I can even, I can tell you it was a race to catch that party, beat our troubadour and yes. our troubadour came back and won. And Mitzrayim came back and won and courageous contender came back and won, you know, one by one, they all came back and ran significantly better. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you want to notice it. And, and if you're, if you're going to buy into that, I think it's a little bit overused at times, but if you're going to buy into it, you better do it start to finish for Nick in this race, it's Cadillac. I decided to just go ahead and try and use all the Europeans, mostly state of rest and soldier rising. Thank you to the guests at target for shutting me out. Let's see who can win this grade one right now. And they're off in the Saratoga Derby and Dujour broke well. Cadillac is there in between horses is Bolshoi ballet. And right alongside is a cellist. 
as they come past the stands for the first time. It is Bolshoi Ballet, Cadillac, and Chellis. Three of them are right together for the lead. They've opened up three lengths on Dujour, who's down on the inside in fourth. And Flashiest on the outside, running in fifth. State of Rest is next in sixth. And King Fury runs in seventh. Down on the inside is Palazzi, who is next in eighth. Followed by Yes This Time in ninth. And at the back are Soldier Rising and Secret Protector. The quarter went in 21 and four-fifth seconds as the field moves up the back stretch. It is long shot cellist leading the favorite Bolshoi Ballet. Cellist is in front by a length and a half. Bolshoi Ballet runs in second and on the inside is Dujour in third. Cadillac is fourth about four lengths from the lead as they continue up the back stretch after a half and 47 and two. On the outside is flashiest. State of rest is down at the rail and running in sixth. Then it's King Fury next in seventh, followed by Palazzi in eighth. Secret Protector begins to pick it up now from the back. Then Soldier Rising, and the trailer is yes this time. Cellist on the inside, Bolshoi Ballet on the outside. The two of them are right together as they come for the top of the stretch. Cellist on the inside and Bolshoi Ballet on the outside. Then it is flashiest. In behind is Dujour. Cadillac looking for a way through. State of Rest is there. And down on the inside is Soldier Rising as the field comes for the eighth pole. Here is State of Rest who has rallied for the lead. State of Rest is in front. Soldier Rising moves into second. It will be state of rest to win it here by a length state of rest pulling off the upset in this million dollar grade one saratoga derby and the number nine state of rest wins 44 20 is the winning mutual 96 buyer uh for, for two horse wind dutching and missing i would have had the freaking exact in this race for a cool 189 for a buck uh i, I the arrows i think just looked really good i think de is going to be the horse that just i'm never going to be able to guess if he's going to run good or not for me at this point. Yeah. And he seems like a horse is pretty hard to warm up to, but um, he's, he ran well um, that, that I will say for sure. He arguably was best. Bolshoi ballet ran a very good race as well. They peeled off a couple of lengths ahead of everybody else. And to be honest with you, state of rest was never really that far back. Mm-hmm. So state of rest was best. It, it was one of those where he, the pace ended up materializing incredibly um obviously the fractions were wrong they didn't go 21 and 4 and i'm sure john and brial as soon as that came out of his mouth probably <laughs> regretted saying it but um they clearly went fast and i think uh, craig Mulkowski put in his adjusted fractions that they, they shaded 48 they're about 112 and change and you know looking at a, at a race that probably other people have seen that are watching or listening to this um look at the saratoga oaks on sunday and colima went 50 on, on a turf yeah. course that was probably even a little bit firmer so the pace was quick in here. It was, uh, and it played out that way. It went to, uh, to horses that came from off of it and Cadillac was bad, but I knew early on that he was not in a good position. It, it did not, it felt like they were moving by the time they came under the wire the first time. And you probably were in no man's land if you were, were within a few lengths of that pace. So state of rest all in all, again, you know, I touched on Joey O'Brien really knowing which horses to send over. I think this was a great example of it. He's clearly a, a superb horseman and uh, I'm going to give every horse he sends over a long, long look moving forward. What do you do with the other O'Brien? And I mean, just obviously we know the stats, how, how bad they've been. He's, he's obviously picked up a few wins since then. I mean, his horses are still getting bet off the board. Like they can't lose. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would continue to be critical of the horses he sends over other than in scenarios where, you know, they look like they, like Santa Barbara and Bolshoi Ballet and the Belmont Oaks and Belmont yes. Derby looked like they were just a lot better than all of these. Mm-hmm. And and I think the light bulb went off for a few other European trainers, you know, or buyers in America. And, and they realized, holy cow, these races are for a lot of money and they're not very good. You know, I, I'm hopeful that in the, in the next Naira racing regime, we see these races get purse reductions because they really need them. They're not, they're not million dollar races. These, yeah. this field would have been the same for a half million. So um, I hope that that's, that's the case. And, you know, the thing is you, you, something's created where you get some European participation, which is nice, but at the same time, I mean, these are just not, they're, they're, they don't really serve much of a purpose anymore. So I'm sure Joey O'Brien and his owners are very happy that the purse was a million <laughs> and they'll take it. Um, but this is a horse that, you know, I guess this race basically took the place of the old secretariat. When the secretariat yeah. was a mile and a quarter, you saw these kind of euros come over for that. 
and and that was about you know four or five hundred thousand dollar race now that it's just a mile it's, it attracts a different group of horses but um this race has kind of taken on that role and and well we'll see if it continues to, to attract the same kind of support it's it's you know what one thing is that american horses are not by this time of year we kind of know who the good ones are on the turf but it, it takes it takes a while Let's move on to the last race of this pod. Race number 10 is the grade $1 million Whitney, one and one-eighth miles on the dirt. If you want to kind of go, I mean, it's only a five-horse field, Nick, just kind of go through and just give kind of your thoughts on each horse that might be able to uh, help some people maybe try and fade some horses or just know when they, when to bet the goods. Yeah, I mean, this would, you know, this to me looked like a foregone conclusion on paper. The Knicks go really, there was no chance he was going to lose. And I generally had a more critical opinion of uh, Maxfield and a lot of other people and mainly my thought on Maxfield was this is a horse that and don't get me wrong he'd been very very good on a number of occasions but the only time he had run at the level that he would need to be competitive with Nick's go had come at Churchill Mm -hmm. and he trains at Churchill regularly he trained at Churchill as a two-year-old he might just be a little bit better at Churchill than he is everywhere else at the same time, you knew that Maxfield was really going to be up against it pace-wise because Nick's go was clearly the lone speed. It's clearly a lot faster than the rest of these horses, and he was just going to try and bury them on the front end. Silver State was a horse that I liked, and I bet in the Met Mile, and I felt very fortunate afterwards, and I still feel very fortunate because he's never beating Nick's go again, and he probably got about as close to Nick's go last Saturday as he's ever going to again. So I, I'm, you know... I was willing to write my divorce papers up with him. My sort of clever, I also didn't think Swiss skydiver could compete with these horses Mm -hmm. because I thought it was a little bit too much off the layoff to, you know, try and face males. And, and I don't want to say that the Preakness was an aberration, but you know, the Preakness was a race where she ended up riding a very strong inside. She was really at the top of her game at the time. And so I'm not surprised she, she won like she did, but um, it's hard for a Philly to compete with, with grade one males, especially, you know, Nick's go and, and those types of horses. And so my clever, my, you know, interesting play in the race was to play a cold Nick's go over by my standards because I thought by my standards had been, was best in the Met mile. And he ran a good second in this race last year. And I felt like I thought he'd be third early and that would give him the opportunity to get the jump on Maxfield or silver state. And he might just outlast them for second. So I played a, I played a big cold five one and I singled Nick's go in my pick five and just kind of went from there. I kind of feel the same way you feel about Maxfield. To me, if if you want to talk about a barn that's kind of, you know, helped a horse along with kid gloves, it's Maxfield. Obviously, the injury problems and what he had, when, what he could have been for the juvenile. I just think the last time you look at a race like this, the San Diego Handicap, where he actually was facing solid, solid horses, Idaho and Express Train beat him. Okay. Then he comes back and runs the two best races of his career at the track. He probably, like you said, wants to go to that being Churchill, Churchill Downs. Nick's go. I mean, you have to figure out, you know, was the, why go to the corn husker out of the grade one and then pops a gigantic buyer. Is this horse really, really the goods or not? I think the fact that he had a one Oh eight and a couple, oh, a couple one Oh eights and a one Oh seven can say this horse can run those high buyers. It wasn't like the horse's top buyer before that was a one Oh one. No, it was like, you know, the mid almost, you know, 110 buyers. I think this horse is for real. I just, they finally figured out this horse needs to go to the lead and he does exactly what every other horse doesn't do on the front end, which is bottom out half the field at 23 and 46, instead of going, you know, 23 and 47, inviting closers in. I got stuck into silver state. I just, I did not bet him in the metropolitan handicap. And I, I really felt like a dummy after not doing that. And two horses had come back, obviously Nick's go being one and another one had also won a grade three with a one-on-one buyer. And I thought, Hmm, maybe he actually is good enough to face this field. And, when I make my odds line, I made Nick's go two to one. I made Silver State five to two. And obviously, even money, I can't play the horse. But I think people are getting the bottom value range on Nick's go, and I'm getting double the value range on Silver State. So I kind of just had to play Silver State. By my standards to me, I understand he's got some really good grade one placings. This horse, I don't think will ever, ever win a grade one. And I think it's just the standard grade two horse, a la Silver Dust, et cetera, these horses that just can win seven or nine grade twos in their career and just move on and have some decent grade one placings when the races line up for them. Swiss skydiver. I'm not going to say the pregnancy was an aberration did win that day, but obviously was better last year. And I just think even with the two races this year, the nice win in the beholder mile and the apple blossom, maybe that uh, this was too much too soon. And I think that she's actually facing a solid horse in Nick's go. And I actually put her in the mix in third. 
Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Um, I thought her Beholder Mile was very, very good. And I think the Apple Blossom was a situation where, you know, not using Lasix against Monomoy Girl and Latruska, who were, you know, it's probably a little, and, and, and Kenny McPeak said that she had been treated for an infection. She was on antibiotics, and that may have had some role in the decision. But I thought she was kind of giving up some, an important, I would say, subplot there. Yeah. But um, I'm very interested in seeing her the rest of the year when she's in maybe some more slightly realistic spots. Let us see who can win this grade one. Whitney consensus pick is Nick's go. Let's hear John Embryol with the call right now. In the Whitney, a bobble at the start for number one by my standards, and he trails the field. Nick's go and Swiss Skydiver. The two of them go out for the early lead going into the clubhouse turn. Swiss Skydiver on the inside and Nick's go on the outside, and now Nick's go goes on with it to take the lead from the Philly Swiss Skydiver, who's running in second. Maxfield is next on the outside in third. Silver State down at the rail, and by my standards, trails the field in fifth. Nick's go opens up here. Nick's go in front by five through a quarter in 23 and two. The champion Philly Swiss skydiver races in second. And then down at the rail, it is Silver State. Right alongside is Maxfield. And by my standards, the long shot in the field is the trailer. They're racing up the backstretch. Nick's go has the lead here by... Almost a half dozen lengths. Ran the opening half mile in 46 and 3. Swiss Skydiver runs in second. Met mile winner Silver State is down at the rail in third. Maxfield in the clear on the outside in fourth. And by my standards, Nick's go. Takes the field around the far turn. The lead is two and a half lengths. Swiss Skydiver is in second. Maxfield, Silver State. The two of them are right together. And by my standards is the trailer. Three quarters up in one ten and one as they come for the quarter pole. It is Nick's go. Challenged here by Swiss Skydiver. Then Maxfield. Silver State is down at the rail. The field is at the three sixteenth pole. It is Nick's go. Silver State at the rail. Maxfield looks to split horses. Then the Philly Swiss Skydiver. Now an eighth of a mile to the finish, and it is Nick's go out in the middle of the track and holding on to the lead here. It's Nick's go with a wire-to-wire victory in the 94th running of the Grade 1 Whitney. Maxfield was second, and Silver State finished third. The mile and a furlong, one minute, 47 and three-fifths seconds. At Nick's go shows that the Cornhusker wasn't an aberration. 410 is the winning mutual. 111 is the winning buyer. Maxfield runs a 105, so now it's kind of like maybe he isn't. He can be just as good another track as Churchill Downs. Silver State runs a 102. It just kind of made me sick to see that exact to kind of blow up in my face. Yeah, you know, Nick's go sort of did what we expected, and uh, I, I find it funny. You know, we we all and look, I engage in it as well. But there's a lot of banter on social media about horses like Nick's go running the way he does for Brad Cox. And, and I, you know, I see people say, I wonder what goes through Ben Colbrook's mind when he sees Nick's go running <laughs> the way he does. And, you know, I, I really would encourage those people to look at the PPs Nick's go is, a, was a grade one winner as a two-year-old. Yeah. He ran a tremendously game second to game winner in, in the breeders cup juvenile. And he just lost his way as a three-year-old. It's just, it, there's just no other way to put it. He, 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 the Gotham completely crushed him after chasing that hot pace. He's ineffective around one turn and he was in a series of either unwinnable races or he was giving, given rides that made those races unwinnable. Yeah. So, you know, now he's in the care of somebody who gave him a lot of time and he's ridden the way he needs to be ridden. He's ridden very aggressively. He's, um, he's not missing an opportunity to, to run hard early and, and around two turns, he's very dangerous. So speed is an enormous weapon. Yeah. And when you put in this race, I thought was interesting because I think the riders did the right thing in the first half mile and Nick's go was so keyed up and so aggressive. They all kind of waited. And so you thought, Hmm, maybe they're going to let him sort of burn himself out, or maybe they're not falling into the trap of the proverbial random off their feet. And then it became clear that when Rosario sort of threw the anchor out at about the half mile pole, they were all in trouble because he got Nixco the breather that he needed. And one of the things that makes this horse so deadly is Rosario, because when you put the real finishing jockeys on a speed horse, they become very, very yes. hard to catch. 
And, and I think that's the scenario with this horse who, uh, you know, now I imagine they're going to be all guns for the Breeders' Cup Classic. I, I think they should be. He's conquered the dirt mile. There's really no reason to go that route again. So, you know, we'll see where he ends up potentially prepping for that. I'm sure the Jockey Club Gold Cup will be discussed. There's probably a chance they'll stay home and run a Churchill in late September. So uh, I, I'm, I'm excited to see where he goes next. I will tell you the one thing, and I wish there was one more week separating the two races. I'd be all over Silver State if they cut him back for the forego. Yeah. I think this horse wants seven furlongs to a mile. I think one turn is his game. I wish there was one more week because it might be coming back just a little bit too quick. But, you know, if you figure the Forgo is going to have Lexitonian, Special Reserve, Mischievous Alex, I mean, it is going to have pace. And he's going to get a tremendous pace to run. And I really hope he goes there. I hope Swiss Skydiver ends up meeting up with Latruska in, in the personal ends. And knowing Kenny McPeak, I think she will. And I'm really in intrigued by that. Because I think she, I think in a very sneaky way, she ran a good race. She yeah. was the closest pursuer of Nick's go. And uh, I mean, she got a little, about a high 90s buyer, which is not, you know, it's consistent with where she's been on, on some of her better days. And um, she'd be taking on a fresher Latruska this time around. But, but Swiss Skydiver, I think, still is in one piece and you kind of mentioned it before, but by my standards as a horse that is just not grade one caliber. And now he's developed these gate problems, which, you know, those <laughs> yeah. are, he's not good enough to overcome those things. Yeah. So that's a, that's a major, major problem for him. Before I let you go, I want to play a couple uh jockey trainer props with you. Uh, obviously we're at the halfway point. Who do you think takes home the, uh, the jockey standings with uh Saez now out to a pretty good lead? You know, the tricky thing here is that Sias, it feels like Sias has ridden well, really well. Mm -hmm. And he's got about a, what, a three win lead? I think, four. Even, I think it's even six now. I think it's, I think it's higher. Okay. Than so he's ridden really well. And, and Irad has not. Correct. And Irad's two main clients have not been hot. So I think Sias is going to win, but I'm not going to be surprised if Irad catches him because, you know, if Chad or Pletcher go on a, you know, if either one of them go on a six for 12 streak like they're liable to do, then that's going to help him catch him really, really quickly. But the difference between Saez and a lot of other guys in those standings is that Saez rides everything. Yes. You know, Saez is going to ride claimers. He's going to ride stakes races. He's going to ride allowance races. So he's going to continue to have, he's obviously got a tremendous agent, Kieran McLaughlin. So, I mean, to answer your question, I think Ira's going to catch him, but, um, but I will, I'll, I'm not going to be surprised if Saez holds on. Makers up by two on Chad Brown. Uh, does Maker have enough horses? I know, obviously, Christoph got such a clean lead last year, and we just knew that he doesn't have the stock as Chad does. I think Chad now just kind of getting his feet out from under him. I think now he'll finally just catch. But I wonder if Maker brings up some horses from, say, Ellis and just, you know, drops just to win some races and maybe gets it a lot closer than we think it's going to be. Yeah, I think Maker's going to run out of bullets. Um, I think Chad's about one to 10 in this. He's going to, he's going to be very, very tough to handle. And the thing is Chad's had little to no racing luck. And, you know, we, I, I would joke, friends of mine would joke with me for years that Chad won every photo he was ever in. <laughs> and he has taken some really tough beats at this meet. He's had a lot of horses not run that great, but, uh, but seeing Regal Glory run as well as she did yesterday and higher truth and McCulloch looks like a really nice two-year-old and he's got the two-year-old that he won with opening weekend. that will come back with, with anticipation. He's going to have uh the favorite in the four star Dave. So he's going to start to win some big races and, and some meaningful races and looking at the Wednesday, Thursday and Friday races, he's doing, you know, a lot of what he does at Saratoga, he's dropping some horses, he's getting them to spots where they can win. And uh, yeah, I think he'll, he'll end up winning. Todd might put a charge into him because yeah. I know Todd's got some two-year-olds that, that, that he's going to run yet. And, uh, and he'll start dropping some horses too, just because that's where they're going to be spotted more realistically. Maker also seems like he, every time there's been a ding dong battle or there's a horse rallying, if it's a maker horse, they catch him. If it's not, <laughs> yeah. you know, if a maker horse is on the lead, they hold on. Everything has gone right. And, you know, it goes to show you that maker really uh, with Churchill closing and everybody getting out of Louisville for the summer, he really had a good line on who he wanted to bring to Saratoga. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having Dub now as an owner and having Rapoli as an owner, you know, you've got dyed in the wool New York guys that are going to help you claim up there and, and find the right horses. And so, yeah, hats off to Maker, who's been been tremendous so far. But uh, but Chad just that's I, I there were I, a couple of people talked to me and said, boy, what happened to Chad? You know, and I said, yeah, you need to let that sleeping dog lie. That's not <laughs> yeah. uh, he is not going to stay down for very long. Last one, more of a joke or not, but uh, Johnny V, who I'm a very big fan of, not off to the best start. He is one win ahead of Flavian practice. Flavian somehow coming up just for the weekend, somehow beat Johnny V in the jockey standings. He won't. 
but it's pretty it's been a rough meet for for johnny i'll tell you i mean it's been you, know, you take guys like junior alvarado johnny velasquez and javier castellano and i mean they're collectively like nine for 200 yes <laughs> it's really bad it's not maybe not 200 but it's really really bad and those guys are world-class riders i mean castellano and velasquez were hall of famers yes. so yeah johnny seems like nothing's gone right and, you know, I wonder in a way if Johnny is probably on the precipice of just becoming like Mike Smith and he's going to ride, you know, two or three yeah. a day. It's mainly going to be stakes and day to day. I don't think he wants to go out there and, and put the tack on five or six times, but um, he rode a little bit better over the weekend. I think things are going to are going to start to go, you know, more in his favor moving forward. He was on state of rest, right? I believe. I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing is that one of the one of the things that happened for Johnny over time was that, you know, Todd Pletcher diversified in terms of the jockeys he was using. Yes. And, and really, Johnny is not his go to anymore. Irad is his go to. And you take a horse like Con Lima yesterday who Pratt was on. And, you know, in the past, that would have been that would have been Johnny's Mount Tav. I'll tell you this much about Pratt. If he was a regular in New York, he'd win at about a 60 percent clip on the turf. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Could be high. I mean, it's it's insane. It's like you're you're a youngster, but. I think it was about 10 years ago, Corey Nakatani came in, Ron Anderson got his book. He was, I kid you not, I mean, he had to be 40% on the turf. He was putting everything on the lead and he was winning left and right. Yeah. And it was, it was incredible. I remember he won the Jamaica or he won one of the fall stakes races in, 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 uh, at Belmont with a Steve Asmussen horse. And, and I mean, and he was riding horse, he was riding everything. He was yeah. riding cheap horses. He was riding good horses and, and Pratt's a great example of it. I mean, I, I was, I was, was in the middle of doing something and, and my video had gotten off on my phone for the lure and I turned it on and Pratt's halfway down the backstretch on Flavius in 49, <laughs> you know, it's like, come on, yeah, like, come on. What are you guys doing? Right. I mean, <laughs> Oh God. So I thought it was funny when Maggie was interviewing him yesterday on the Saratoga Live show. And she said, you know, Flavian, do you look at the racing form and do you take advantage of the fact that there's really never a pace here? And he was like, no, 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 I don't, I don't think about that. And I thought he's not going to give it away. <laughs> yeah, he's not going to tell everybody like, yeah, you know, I'm going to keep stealing these guys lunch money if they let me. Oh my God. That is too funny. That they is give all him plenty of opportunity. No doubt. For sure. That is all the time we have for today. I want to thank my special guest, Nick Tamara for coming on. Nick, always a pleasure. Where can people find you on social media? I'm at NTAMM1215. You can find me on InTheMoneyPodcast.com. I know also uh, Pete and Matt Fagbolgi and I are going to do a pick six pod preview tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, take a look out for that. And thanks for having me, Spencer. Absolutely. Looking forward to that pod as well. And thanks so much. I want to thank again all the loyal listeners to this podcast and my special guest, Nick Tamaro for what was a uh, pretty fun fuel pack podcast. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Pierre Thomas Fornatel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time.